Brothers and sisters, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to our text, which comes from Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And today we'll be considering verses 1 to 13, but we are going to read the entirety of Mark 13 together as this is, as this is one section, this is uh, one discourse. And so we are going to read this all together, but be looking in particular this morning to Mark 13 verses 1 to 13. So please, brothers and sisters, if you would hear with me then the reading of God's word. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be here left one stone upon that that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that it may not happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his own work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, today we will begin then what will be a, a three-part study in what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And so today we'll be considering the, the first portion of that in verses 1 to 13. Now its name comes from the fact that uh, Jesus has this discourse He has this encounter, this interaction, this teaching with his apostles on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Now, this is certainly one of the more debated and contested passages in in all of the New Testament uh, for a variety of reasons. Yet, although it is a difficult text, I believe that when we understand what Jesus is doing here, the passage opens up for us. And becomes easier to understand. Now hear me out. I'm not saying that all difficulty is alleviated. Or all the problems are resolved. But I think when we understand what Jesus is doing here. We we can come to the right interpretation of the text. Now I take the historic reformed amillennial approach to the text. uh, Just as uh, Calvin and, and Boving took. And that is the interpretation that I will be conveying to you over the course of these sermons. And I want you to understand this. These are sermons. Uh, We're not in the classroom. And so the way that we are going to approach chapter 13 is through the proclamation of God's word, right? The, the, The preaching of the truth of God's word through exposition and application, which means what? I'm not going to be diving into all the intricacies of of all of the different approaches to this text. This isn't a time just for me to, to teach you all the differences that, that arise amongst uh, the different approaches to this text. Although I will point out the, the, the two other main approaches besides the amillennial approach uh, would be called the preterist approach, which is usually associated with postmillennialism. And then you have the futurist approach, which is usually associated with dispensationalism. But we're not going to be highlighting every single difference. But as key differences arise, I I will point out why I believe the amillennial approach to the text is the is the best interpretation of the text. Okay, so with that as our foundation, with that as our our start, our starting point, uh, one of the key things that we must now grasp before we approach the text, before we seek to understand the text, is we have to ask the question: uh, What type of teaching is this? What type of teaching is going on here in Mark 
13. Because if you don't, you end up making the mistake that I believe these, these two other approaches make. And they actually make them the same mistake, but in opposite directions. Right? The, the futurist says that this text, Mark 13, is talking about nothing that is, has occurred or will occur now, but something that will occur in the future. Right? And the preterist does the exact same thing, except they push everything in the past. They say, this has been fulfilled. Mark 13, for the most part, has been fulfilled in A.D. 70 at the fall of the temple. And in doing so, though, what, what, what do both of them do? They really make this text not about Christians. Right? It's about the Jews in the future or the Jews in the past. This text has not much to say to us. And so our interpretation, or the interpretation that we'll be taking, is a, is a more balanced interpretation. Right? We see this not as a question of either or, but rather what we, our view is going to be one of both and. Right? We see both this text addressing what has occurred in A.D. 70 at the fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem, but also we see this talking about future events that likewise will occur. And that's why I said it's important to understand what type of teaching this discourse is. We have to understand what type it is because specific interpretive tools are necessary to be exercised by the reader in order to understand this discourse or or else you're going to end up with the wrong result. And so what type of discourse is this, brothers and sisters? It's what we call prophetic discourse. This is a prophetic discourse. And oftentimes in prophetic discourse, what happens is the collapsing of two events that may appear to be one, but in fact are more than one. And there are numerous examples of this in the Bible. And I just want to show us one, to, to give you one example of what I mean. So I'd ask, brothers and sisters, that you would turn with me to Joel chapter 2. You would turn with me to Joel chapter 2. And beginning in verse uh, 28, and we'll read down to verse 32. So Joel chapter 2. Verses 28 to 32. And this is what we read. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Now, turn with me over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 and verses 16 to 21. Acts chapter 2, verses 16 to 21. Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 16 to 21. So this is what, what Peter says here. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit in all the flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter quotes from this prophecy from Joel as being fulfilled at Pentecost. Right? Peter's saying this prophecy of Joel is fulfilled at Pentecost. But what did we read in verses 19? Right? We read of cosmic or universal signs, signs that are repeated for us here in Mark chapter 13, verses 24 and 25. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And so, brothers and sisters, was this fulfilled at Pentecost? Or will it be fulfilled at the second advent of Christ? Right? What I want you to see is that what appeared to Joel and Peter as one single vision is actually more than one separated by at least 2,000 years. Right? What appeared to Joel and Peter to be one event was actually two events that is separated by at least 2,000 years. And this is what theologians call prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective. And that is what I posit to you is going on in our text this morning. Right? It, is a, it is a collapsing of events so that when Jesus is speaking, it may appear that he is speaking about one event, when in fact he is speaking of more than one thing. Let me give you an analogy of what I mean. And I took this from Kim Riddlebogger, who's a Reformed pastor and a, an author and theologian. But this is how he, uh, an example he gives for us to, to, to better understand prophetic perspective. And so he says this, as I stand in the greater Los Angeles basin and look towards the mountains to the northeast, I see a single mountain ridge on the horizon. Yet, if I were to drive directly toward the mountains, I would soon realize what appeared to be a single ridge was actually a series of hills, valleys, mountains separated by many miles. So it is with some Old Testament prophecies. And is this, brothers and sisters, that I want to suggest to you is going on in our text today, in this Olivet Discourse, is Jesus is acting as the great prophet. Right? He is a prophet, just like the prophets of old. Right? Using this prophetic discourse, this prophetic perspective, to talk about things as if it was one event, when in fact it was more than one event. And so it's with this interpretive tool then that we have handy in our pockets that we can now look to unpack the text to discover what in fact it means. And we're going to do that this morning then under three main headings. And our three main headings are these. First is pains. Pains. Second is plan. Plan. And third is perseverance. Perseverance. So pains, plan, perseverance. Now we pick up this morning as Jesus has just left the temple and he has just commended the widow for her giving. And in doing so, right, he calls the apostles over and he teaches them about the importance of not exercising themselves in hypocritical worship like the scribes, but rather truly worshiping God like this, like this widow did who gave 
her two last coins to the Lord, but in doing so, didn't just demonstrate that she was willing to give her money to God, but she demonstrated she was willing to give all of herself to God, that all she had belonged to the Lord. And so he commended her uh, for that. And we've seen that last week. And now as they walk out of the temple, we are told that one of the disciples says to Jesus, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. Now the temple was beautifully and amazingly constructed and arrayed. It was regarded as an architectural wonder. The historian Josephus tells us that the temple was built of hard, it was built of hard white stones. He says that they were 25 cubits in length, 8 cubits in height, and 12 cubits in width, which, which converts to this. A hard, one of the hard white stones was 37 and a half feet long. It was 12 feet tall and 18 feet wide. Right? One writer described the temple as a mountain of white marble decorated in gold. And so no wonder as they walk out of the temple that they are amazed by the temple. Right? We would be as well if we've seen the temple. One of the great wonders of the world. And yet, what do we see, brothers and sisters? Jesus does not have the same reaction that the apostles do to the temple. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't react in excitement like they do when they see the temple. Why is that? Well, it's because what's at the forefront of, of our Savior's mind is the desecration of that temple that just occurred days prior as a chief priest allowed people to buy and sell and to profane the temple of God. And so here we see in the, the differing reactions that true beauty for us oftentimes comes by what we see outwardly. Right? The, the disciples seen the beauty outwardly of the temple and they, they stood in awe of it. But with Christ, the true beauty of the church is not to be found in its physical appearance, but rather the true beauty of the church is found when its faith is built upon Jesus Christ. Right? The, the apostles were, were enamored with, with the building, with the, with the outward appearance of it, but Jesus is not enamored by those things. That is not true beauty to Jesus. True beauty to Jesus is holiness. It's righteousness. It's godliness. It's obedience. It's truth and it's faith. Which is why in verse 2 then he says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And why does Jesus say that? Why does he tell them this? It's because God was not to be found in the temple any longer. God was not to be found there as they had profaned the temple and because the Jews had rejected His Son and because they have despised the grace of God. And so He was not to be found in the temple any longer. And in fact, now He is determined to destroy the temple as the temple became a stumbling block for the Jews in seeing Christ. And so God has now said, I'm going to destroy this temple. I'm going to tear the veil before your eyes so that you might see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And after hearing that the temple would be destroyed, the apostles must have been mulling this over as they made that short journey to the Mount of Olives. And as they sit down upon that, that mount, they looked over across the way and they, they see the temple as they gaze upon it. To hear the temple was going to be destroyed for them was beyond what they thought was ever capable of occurring. Think about it. The, the destruction of the temple to them would be something like equivalent to us, the destruction of the White House. We couldn't imagine the White House being destroyed. 
And think about then how much more it was hard for the Jews to think about the temple being destroyed as their very identity as a people was tied up in the temple. Right? The, the, the temple was a, was a sign of God's covenant with Israel. The temple was a symbol that God's favor was upon Israel. The temple was the place that Israel was given to offer sacrifice for forgiveness of sin. And now they hear that the temple is going to be destroyed. And so the apostles say, wait, 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 wait. This is inconceivable. Please, Lord, tell us more. This is why then Peter, James, John, and Andrew say to Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now in their question, brothers and sisters, they falsely assume that when the temple will be destroyed, the end of the age will come. They falsely assume that when the temple is destroyed, the end of the age will come. They associated these two events together, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And this comes out uh, more clearly for us when we look at Matthew's parallel account of this text. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, uh, Matthew records that the disciples asked these, these three questions. The apostles asked Jesus to tell them when these things will be, what is the sign of your coming, and what will be the sign of the end of the age? And so we see more clearly there that they are tying the destruction of the temple to the end of the age. But I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that just because they ask the question doesn't mean they're asking the right question or that the question they ask, that the details of the question are right. We are not to assume that. We can't assume that. And I think this is one of the areas in which people make the mistake and they assume that the question that the disciples asked is the right one, and the details in the question is right. But we have no reason to, to take them as being as asking the right question, because why? We've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark that they constantly are getting the kingdom of God wrong. Right? We see this even in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. After the, the resurrection of Jesus, and right before his ascension, what does Jesus say to the apostles? He says, stay here in Jerusalem, and soon you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what is their response to Jesus? Lord, is it at this time then that you are going to restore the kingdom of God to Israel? And what happens? Dispensationalists take that passage and they say, look, God is going to establish an earthly kingdom. Look look at the question that they ask. And it must be so. The, The apostles thought it was going to be true. Well, the apostles had mistaken expectations, just as they have mistaken expectations here in tying the destruction of the temple to the end of the age. right? They were wrong in tying these two events together. And so Jesus is going to answer their questions, but he's not going to do so according to their wrong understanding of history. And this is what we're going to see in this series of sermons. That Jesus is going to demonstrate to them that the end of the age and the destruction of the temple are not to be tied together, but rather they are two distinct events. And so Jesus then is going to seek to correct their misunderstanding through this prophetic discourse. But what we see is Jesus actually answers the second question first. He begins to answer the second question first, which is, what are the signs of the end? And he starts it in verse 5 by telling them, be careful that you are not led away. In verse 6 he says that many will come in my name saying, I am he. In verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. 
In verse 8, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, did the Israelites experience this leading up to the destruction of the temple? Absolutely they did. But did these things stop at the destruction of the temple? Absolutely not. They continue on. And so what Jesus is describing is things that still occur today. In fact, what Jesus is saying to us is that as long as you and I live, as long as the church exists, as long as we are living in these present days and until Christ returns, brothers and sisters, you and I are going to continue to be living in the birth pains. We're going to continue to be living in the birth pains. Jesus says these things are not the end. They're not even close to the end. So don't be alarmed. Don't be carried away by people who come back when you hear wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes happen and they they say to you, I am He, I am the Messiah. I've come to set up my earthly kingdom. Don't listen to them, Jesus says. Brothers and sisters, this is one reason why we need to stop tying local events or current events with the return of Jesus. We need to stop doing that. Jesus is telling us we are not to think that way. Catastrophes and calamities have been befalling humanity for thousands of years. We are not to tie them to the return of Christ. And so what Jesus is really doing here is he's telling them these things in order that they would be courageous for the time when Christ is gone. That they might be courageous once he disappears. When you hear and you see these things that I'm describing, he's saying, don't worry. He's telling them so that they would not worry, but he's also telling them so that they know that things are also going to get worse. Things are going to get progressively worse. This is what he's telling them. These are the things they must go through. And brothers and sisters, these are the things that we too must go through. We must continue to go through these things so we shouldn't be surprised. And mothers here who have had children before, you know what birth pains are, don't you? Birth pains, from what I understand, start out bad, but they progressively worsen. They get progressively worse. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, it will be that way until the end of the age. And so we don't know when the end will be, and so there's no reason to get anxious. But Jesus is telling us to always live in readiness, to always live in expectation for His coming, but not to panic. Not to panic when these things happen. Because these things will be our existences for as long as we're here. We're going to continue to experience these things as a result of the fall. And they were going to continue on until the consummation. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation but we ourselves. And so I ask, should we have expected all this to stop at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Well, no. Because when does Paul say the birth pains will end? He will go on to say in Romans chapter 8 that the birth pains end at the redemption of our bodies. He's talking about the return of Christ. And so Jesus and Paul are talking about the very same thing. And so what they are describing is the whole church age dealing with birth pains until Christ returns to rescue His church and to create a new heavens and a new earth which no longer groans. That is what they are describing. Now Jesus continues to answer the second question, but now He describes in more detail 
what they themselves are going to experience physically. Yet, because Jesus is speaking of two distinct events, the fall of the temple as well as his second advent, he is able to describe things that will both be accomplished not only in their lifetime, but will continue to be accomplished throughout our own lifetimes and in our own generations. So look with me at verses 9 to 13, please. He says, But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Brothers and sisters, this leads us into point number two this morning, which is plan. Plan. Now Jesus here is trying to discourage any false sense of imminence in the saints, but he is also trying to encourage them to, to faithfulness and boldness in the face of what it is they are going to endure. And so he reveals to them that all that they will endure is going to happen according to the plan of God. Right? He's telling them what is going to happen in the future so that when he ascends and it happens, they can remember what Jesus said. And that they can be comforted and, and be given peace by it. That they see that all that is occurring is occurring according to the plan of God. And nothing is happening outside of his control. And do we not see this in Acts? Right? We see this especially Acts chapter 4. If you remember, Peter and John are arrested for, for preaching the gospel. And they're brought before the council. When they're let go, what are we told they do? They recount that all things that are happening are happening to the plan of God. And then they ask God in verse 29 of chapter 4, that as the threats persist, would God continue to, bold, to embolden them to preach the word. This is exactly what we see. And what was it, that, and what was behind the threats? What, what is behind the threats? Why is Jesus saying that they are going to be delivered up? Why is he saying that they are going to be beaten? Why is he saying that they are going to be put on trial? It is because of the gospel. It is because of the gospel that these things will happen. And this is exactly what happened to, to Stephen and to Peter and to Paul and to John. They were brought before councils. Right? Paul was, was put on trial. Stephen was stoned to death. Right? They were delivered up for what? For preaching the gospel. And today, do these things still not occur? Absolutely they do. You can see them occurring in Canada. In prison for preaching the word. We can look to the Middle East and Afghanistan. You can look to China and North Korea and Africa. But brothers and sisters, I want you to see the reason that they hate. The reason that they hate Christians is not because of you. If you thought like them, if you acted like them, if you believed like them, they would love you. You would be their best friend. Right? They hate you because you love Christ. They hate you because you confess Christ, because you believe in Christ, because you live under the authority of Christ. And so that is the reason why you are persecuted. That is the reason that you are suffering. Because it is Christ and the gospel that causes the offense. It is Christ and the gospel that causes the offense. But this is why Jesus can say to, to Paul who was Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me when Saul was persecuting the church? Right? It is Christ and the gospel that caused the offense. But what does Jesus say in verse 10? 
that before the end comes, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. He's telling them that the gospel going forth everywhere to all nations is central to the divine plan of God. This must happen. This must occur. Not only is all that happens in the world described in verses 6 to 9, all those calamities, not, not only are those calamities under the control and divine authority of God, but so too is all these sufferings and trials that the, that the saints are going to go through in verses 9 to 13. Right? Jesus is telling them, your, your faith is going to be tested. You are going to be tempted to give up, to, to turn away from the faith, to run away. But don't, don't give up. Don't be overwhelmed. God has everything under control. That is what Jesus is, is telling the saints. God has a, has a plan and He's working out that plan. And in that plan, central to that plan, is the promulgation of the gospel to the world. But as that work occurs, Christians will suffer. Christians are going to suffer as the gospel is being proclaimed. But don't be discouraged. God is saying, I am fulfilling my purpose in bringing sinners to faith in me through the preaching of the word. This is why he says, have boldness. In verse 11, do not be anxious about what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will be guiding you. Right, Jesus is, is encouraging them. Press on, Christian. He's encouraging us today. Press on, Christian. Right, you are not in this world alone. I will not forsake you. Right, when those times of trial and suffering and persecution come, do not worry, for I will be fortifying you with my Holy Spirit. He even cautions them, saying, Family members will turn against family members. Some will be put to death. The world will hate you in verses 12 and 13. And do we not see this continuing on today in our own lifetime? Friends who were once your friends are your friends no more because of your faith in Christ. Family members you were once close to don't want anything to do with you anymore because of your faith in Christ. In foreign lands, people have mothers, fathers, sons and daughters who turn them into the authorities because of their faith. And they are beaten, and they are tortured, and they are killed for these things. And so Jesus is warning them, he's preparing them. He's telling them, be ready for these turbulent times. And brothers and sisters, you and I also must heed this warning. You and I also must prepare for these turbulent times. Because Jesus says they will continue until the gospel goes out to all nations. When the Lord's work for the gospel ends, then... We will be freed from all affliction. But what does that mean then for you and I? That we are to not expect anything less than what the apostles and the disciples suffered from. We are not to expect anything less than hatred from the world and suffering and persecution. What we don't see here, brothers and sisters, in Jesus' warning is any any hint of of a golden age of Christianity upon the earth. What we don't see here is that Christians are going to have dominion on the earth. What we don't see here is a reconstructed governments all around the world that they're going to be dominating the land before Christ returns. We see none of those things. But rather, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, right, that the church is destined for affliction. Right? The order comes present age suffering, future age glory. Right? The, the church will continue to be the suffering church until the gospel goes forth to all the nations and the gospel has done its work that God has set it out to do, and then nothing else comes after it but glory in the age to come. There is no earthly millennial kingdom. There is no thousand years of prosperity on earth. So, brothers and sisters, expect, if you are Christians, to suffer and deal with troubles and trials and tribulations in your life for the entirety of your life. 
with your friends, with the world, with your family. But we can live the Christian life with all boldness, knowing that the Spirit of Christ is in us. He's working in us. He is with us. We are not alone. And even if this world finds us guilty, right? even if this world seeks to punish us for our faith, we can know for certain that on that last day, Although the world has found us guilty, Christ will vindicate us before His Father. That we can know for certain. This leads us, brothers and sisters, into our third and final point this morning, which is perseverance. Jesus calls on the apostles to press on until the end, telling them at the end of verse 13 that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, why would He have to tell them the one who endures to the end will be saved if their entire existence is not marked by trial and tribulation. That their entire existence will be marked by trial and tribulation just like yours and mine. This is what Herman Boving likewise sees and declares, saying this, in this present age, his disciples cannot expect anything other than oppression and persecution and must forsake all things for his sake. Boving goes on to say, Jesus nowhere predicts a glorious future on earth but the, before the end of the world. On the contrary, the things he experienced are the things his church will experience. A disciple is not above his teacher and a slave not above his master. Only in the age to come will his disciples receive everything back along with eternal life. Right As we have said already, our existence will be marked by birth pains. It will be marked by trials and tribulations and suffering and persecution. But Jesus says, perseverance will result in salvation. My brothers and sisters, as we, as we hear about uh, what will be going on in the, in the days of head, uh, ahead and what we hear about what is going on in the Christian life, what we ought to be setting our, our mind upon and setting our eyes upon is that very salvation. Right? That salvation that has been granted to us by the Father and purchased for us by Christ and applied to us by the Spirit. The same Spirit who causes that perseverance in us. The same Christ who won us that perseverance. The same Father who causes us to persevere until the end being kept in the bosom of Christ until He returns. Perseverance, like our salvation at the end, the the completion of our salvation is all of God and is all of grace. Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to its completion. It is God who saves. It is God who keeps. It is God who preserves us in Christ until the end. And so no matter what light momentary afflictions we might suffer from, they cannot compare to the inexpressible glory that we will receive if we continue on steadfast in our faith, knowing, brothers and sisters, that no matter what you and I might suffer from and experience in this present age, Christ our Savior has experienced it as well. And so, as we pass on, we must know that the the end will not come until Christ tries His church and He purifies her through fiery trials. And thanks be to God that He has not left us in the dark, but He has told us what must happen as He gives encouragement to every successive generation that comes after one another to continue to press on toward the upward call of glory with the Lord. Right? Knowing that the gospel must go forth to the ends of the earth, that sinners must be saved, that no devil, that no demons, that no principalities, that no powers, and no authorities can stop Christ and can prevail against His gospel and can prevail against Christ saving all of His elect. 
And as his church, as the bride of Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution, as the world mocks us, as the world, as the world ridicules us for our faith, we ought to say to the world, just like the early church father Tertullian said, go on, rack, torture, grind us to powder. Our numbers increase as you mow us down. The blood of the Christians is their harvest seed. And this is what we've seen with the apostles, is it not? As they were tortured, as they were beaten, as they were killed, what happens? The church grows. The message of the gospel goes forth and the church continues to extend to the nations. This is what we've seen in the time of the Reformation. As the church suffered, the gospel became clear to the people. And what? More and more and more people were saved as they heard the gospel, as God's word went forth to the nations. And likewise, brothers and sisters, that ought to be our prayer that God will continue to use us as a means to spread the gospel in the world, to increase His church here, yet knowing that the end will not come until all of God's elect hear the word and are saved. Please bow your head King. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your sure and true word. We thank You, Lord, that You have given to us warnings. Uh, you have caused us to, to heed your teaching. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would do that, that you would uh, reveal to us the, the truth of your word by the Holy Spirit, and that you would uh, grant to us boldness and courage and confidence to, to live uh, the Christian life in this world, even if we uh, struggle with, with persecution and suffering and trials and tribulations knowing that your purposes and your plans are being worked out in the world, knowing that the gospel must go forth to the praise and the glory of your name. And so, Father, we come before you praying all these things. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.